Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. Joining us today is Dr. Nabiha Saglayan, CEO and co-founder of Salino Biotech, a company devoted to making personalized autologous cell therapies scalable, thereby making these treatments available to a much wider range of patients. In September, Salino competed in the startup battlefield TechCrunch Disrupt 2021, going head to head against other startups in front of judges from the VC and tech world and emerged victorious. Today, we're going to talk with Nabiha about her company's innovative approach to developing cell therapies, which combines stem cells, machine learning, and wait for it, lasers. Dr. Suklayan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Awesome. Well, let's begin. I'd like to start, if we might, with just some definitions of terms. I want to walk through Salino's mission word by word. What is a cell therapy? That's a great place to start. A cell therapy is a therapy where you make new cells for the patient and transplant them into the body to change the outcome of a disease or a trajectory of a disease. Let's take Parkinson's as an example. Let's say a patient has Parkinson's. A cell therapy approach would essentially generate new dopaminergic neurons for those patients and transplant them into the brain. And this could be an effective cure for the disease. Okay. What does autologous mean? Autologous, another great point to clarify, means any cell type that's patient-derived, patient-specific. There can be a couple ways of doing that. The more traditional and the first wave of cell therapies all involve taking a patient's cells, usually their blood cells, and engineering them outside the body and then reinfusing those cells back into the body for cancer therapies. After modifying them in some way? Exactly. Yes, exactly. You can engineer them in a particular way to target cancer cells. There's this whole complex process that you have to do to the cells. And this was how the first CAR T cell therapies were engineered. And the autologous cell therapies that Selena is focused on are a little bit different in that it involves taking blood cells from a patient, turning those blood cells into patient-specific stem cells. We work with a special kind of stem cell called induced pluripotent stem cells. And then using that stem cell to make any therapeutic cell of choice for the patient, whether it's neurons or skin cells or heart cells, eye cells, you name it, and reinfusing, reinjecting those therapeutic cells back into the patient. What's really nice about autologous cell therapies, because you're using the patient's own cells, you don't really have to use immunosuppression, which can limit the number of patients you can target with these therapies if you had to use immunosuppression in some cases. To summarize and make sure I understand, the goal is to be able to remove cells from a patient's body, turn them into stem cells, reprogram those stem cells into some cell type of interest, and then return those cells to the patient to exert a therapeutic effect. Do I have that right? Beautiful. Okay, so sounds simple enough. What's the problem? Manufacturing. It's very challenging to make really high quality stem cells and then turn those stem cells into a therapeutic cell type of choice. The biology is complex. And being able to do the biology in a reproducible way, in a high-yield way, is very tedious. And so far, most of these stem cells and derived cells have generally been made by hand. It's a very artisanal process. The stem cell manufacturing process literally involves 
a scientist sitting at a bench, highly trained scientist sitting at a bench, looking at these cells by eye during this reprogramming process and identifying which cells are good or bad and then scraping away the bad cells by hand. It's very difficult to ensure consistency across different scientists at different times of day. It just makes the entire manufacturing process very, very expensive. Cell therapy doses for a particular patient can cost on the order of a million dollars, so it's not economically feasible. In order to scale these cell therapies to hundreds, thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of patients, the manufacturing crisis would have to be solved. You've really done a great job of breaking down what's limiting the current state of the art. It sounds like standardization, the time involved, both of those things are really limiting the overall throughput of the approach. Exactly. It's about throughput. It's about yield. It's about consistency. And because there's very little to no automation in the process, it's impossible to get reproducible procedures and put those in place. And at a million dollars, you want to know what you're getting at a very minimum. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We're in this new wave of cell and gene therapies absolutely taking off, gene-edited therapies taking off. And it's very, very exciting. And one of the biggest conversations that I'm involved in as a leader in biotech is really around how do we make these advanced therapeutics available to patients because they can be very customized. They need specific manufacturing technologies. So there is this movement happening right now around democratization and how to bring access to these therapies to larger and larger patient volumes because otherwise, you know, we're missing our opportunity to serve as many patients that could benefit. And there's literally hundreds of millions of patients that could benefit from stem cell-derived therapies around the world. Well, I certainly think, and I, I think our listeners would agree, that's a very noble goal. I'd like to hear specifically about how Selena is going to improve the current state of the art. You don't have to get to it immediately, but I really want to hear about the lasers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can talk to you about lasers for days. You know, I'm a laser physicist by training. To talk a little bit about what Selino is doing, Selino is working towards automating the entire process of making patient-specific cells. So we're automating this process of starting with blood cells, turning them into stem cells, and then turning those stem cells into any cell or tissue type of your choice that you'd like to use as a therapy. The way we automate this process is by using machine learning algorithms that have been trained to look at images of cells and tell us which cells are high quality and which ones are not. And we do this with different data sets that we're feeding into our algorithms during the training phase. But essentially, the algorithm can look at a population of cells and say, okay, these are good and these aren't so good. So we should get rid of them. And this is where the laser comes in, Chris. So the laser <laughs> comes in and zaps away any unwanted cells, and that's it. And we do this in a closed-loop pattern and approach so that the algorithms are constantly recognizing the low-quality cells and eliminating them as quickly as possible. And what's really nice about using a laser, and this is what got me so excited about entering the biotech space as a whole about five years ago, is the precision that you get with a laser beam. The Selino system right now has subcellular resolution. The laser beam spot is about two microns in size, so we can target parts of the cell. So you can essentially remove individual cells from a cell culture, which is amazing. That is pretty amazing. Just for our listeners who aren't familiar with microscopy, about how big is a human cell, or at least the kinds of cells that you're working with? About 10 to 15 microns. Oh, wow. And your resolution is two microns. Yeah, it's about two, two and a half <laughs> microns. Yes. Okay. So you can really get in there and 
very specifically take away the cells that are not of interest. What is the source of the ground truth for the machine learning? Does that question well-formed? You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. So there are many different ways you can do this. We really like to work with a lot of established fluorescence-based assays that have been established by industry experts that are used to characterize good versus bad cells during a cell manufacturing process. So what we do is we take pairs of images of cells, a bright field image, and then fluorescently tagged images of the same cells, the exact same cells, tagging the features we're interested in. And we've done trainings with nuclear location. We've done pluripotency markers. We are working primarily on stem cells this year, making stem cells. So pluripotency markers are essentially markers of stem cells. And um, we feed this training data set into a neural net. And once it's seen enough of these pairs of images, it can really start to build correlations between what it sees in the bright field label free image versus what it's seeing in fluorescence. And then when it sees a brand new image, a label free image that's not been tagged, it's never seen before, it can create a virtual fluorescence image showing, okay, if we were to stain these cells fluorescently, these are the cells that would show up with the nuclear locator or they'd show up with the pluripotency stain. So what's really nice about this approach is a lot of the stains that we work with are terminal. So when you use these stains on the cells, you kill them. And in a cell therapy manufacturing process, you can't really kill the cells because you need to transplant them eventually into the patient. So far, everything was limited to some type of sampling, like take 10,000 cells out of your population and test those, but not really having an understanding what happened to the rest of the you know, half a million cells that are finally going to end up in the patient. So it's really amazing to be able to tap into image-based machine learning algorithms and the autonomous self-driving car industry for advancing a lot of the neural nets that we're using in our training. So it's a very exciting time. Then the other aspect of the data says that we're interested in is not just image data, but also biological readouts. So we're interested in qPCR data sets. We're interested in RNA sequencing data sets. So all the information that we can provide to the algorithms to figure out which cells are the, in quotation marks, best cells based on all of these sets of data. Oh, I see. So one of the kinds of training data you could use, you could take a set of cells and take pictures of them, bright field images, and then store those images and then do RNA-seq on the same cells. And it would tell you yes or no, those cells were the kind of cells that you wanted. And then ask the machine to be able to distinguish just from the image alone, which cell had the right transcriptional profile. That is the dream, Chris. Absolutely. We're definitely taking a stepwise approach to getting there. So in the near term, we're focusing on a lot of imaging data sets and then stepping into qPCR, but we're very interested in RNA-seq as a great way to check cell quality. Well, clearly, Selena is not afraid of like thinking about the future and thinking big. So I'm sure that you're going to get there eventually. This seems like a really good time to talk about an issue that I wanted to broach with you, which is, as you mentioned, your PhD is not in cell biology, but physics. And your thesis involved the use of lasers to deliver certain kinds of substrates into cells. Are the core technologies of the Selino approach based on tools that you developed during your graduate work? They're definitely inspired by the work I did in my PhD, but we've evolved quite dramatically. And it's quite amazing to see how quickly science moves in industry. Very rewarding part of our job. But yes, it is still inspired by the same idea of using laser-based activation of materials to generate bubbles to poke holes in cells. 
of course, the way we do it and the precision we have in the system and machine learning, all of those are novel aspects of the Slino platform. But the core concept of making bubbles to turn cells into Swiss cheese is consistent. <laughs> uh, and what's interesting about what we can do is if you make large bubbles, you kill the cell. If you make small bubbles, you can deliver cargoes into cells. So that still holds. But we don't do a ton of delivery work these days because we're mostly focused on the manufacturing process. But that is an add-on option for the platform. The fact that the history of biology is replete with examples of physicists kind of entering the field and looking at things in a new way and fomenting major or even revolutionary change. And I just wanted to give you a chance to talk to us about how do you think your training as a physicist has influenced your approach to biological problems? Maybe I can share a little bit about how all of this happened. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Absolutely. I'm always surprised to find myself where I am and the things I'm working on. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. My story, I... When I started my PhD at Harvard, I decided that I wanted to be in biophysics, even though I was very intellectually curious about string theory, particle physics, but everything, all of those subfields felt very far away from real world applications. And I decided I want to be closer to real world applications. And it would be really cool if I could help build some tools for biologists. That was my main motivation going into my PhD. I joined a laser physics lab, started working on laser-based approaches of engineering cells. And the last year of my PhD, I was super motivated to have some data that I could include in my thesis that said I worked with cells. <laughs> that was my motivation. So I started knocking on a lot of doors across the street at the Harvard Stencil Institute. They happened to be the closest biology department. And then, you know, beyond and, you know, ended up at Harvard Med School with the Church Lab and Derek Rossi and David Skadden. But quickly, enough, it was obvious that doing this type of laser-based engineering of cells, there was something really powerful to it in its precision and the cell viabilities that we were seeing. There was a lot of very surprising elements about the data, which just worked way better than anybody ever imagined. And in that moment, as I was working with these incredible biologists, they were the ones who encouraged me to think about a commercialization path. It's not something I'd ever really considered for myself, but they said, Nabiya, this could be really powerful for biology. We need a tool like this in the world. So I am really grateful that I got to do my PhD in a very collaborative, supportive environment, working with brilliant scientists. And you know, Boston is a very special place because there's many smart people here, but also very innovative ecosystem. That was my first introduction to entrepreneurship. You know, the three founders at Salino, we all happen to be trained in physics. <laughs> so we come in and we're trying to solve a very important problem and working very closely with biologists. But yes, we do bring a very first principles approach. What are we trying to solve for? How do we simplify this? How do we separate out all of the pieces and build a system that can scale that is fully automated? So there are some great perspectives that have come out from the Salino journey, and it's been awesome to experience that. And I do think there's something that's really special about Salino is the our convergent team. You know, we started off as a group of physicists, and then we quickly brought on amazing biologists to work with, and then have more recently started to build out our machine learning and software team, which ultimately will be the largest team at Salino because our mission is to be software driven. So there's great innovation that's happening at the interface of stem cell biology, software, and hardware. And we're constantly iterating to figure out what is the best solution to the problem we're trying to solve. Cool. I want to go back to talking about the actual technology that you're developing. You told us about the use of label-free imaging, machine learning, 
And then in the vessel, and I guess I don't really know what kind of a vessel are the cells in? Are they just in regular old Petri dishes or culture flasks? Help us visualize here. We do make special cell culture vessels that have a special absorbing layer on the bottom, either well-played format, but our GMP system is a closed format. And that's it. Otherwise, it's a pretty regular cell culture system, but it does have a special absorbing layer at the bottom that allows for the laser to generate these bubbles I mentioned earlier to engineer the cells. I see. And by engineering, you mean you're delivering some nucleic acid, some DNA of interest that's going to, or is it an RNA that's going to cause the cells to undergo the reprogramming process? Actually, we don't use the laser right now to deliver any cargos to the cells. We can do that if we choose to, but you know we're using small molecules or other biological approaches to get the cargos into the cell, and we're just using the laser to remove any unwanted cells. So the process of making a stem cell out of a blood cell and the process of making a cell type of interest out of that stem cell, those both involve some kind of manipulation of gene expression, but not necessarily, and hopefully optimally, does not involve any kind of long-term introduction of DNA into the cell. Can you tell us a bit about how you go from a blood cell to a stem cell and from a stem cell to, say, a dopaminergic neuron? I will mention here there are many ways to do it. And our platform is biology agnostic. But I'll talk to you about some of the ways that we're exploring it and our partners are interested in working on this. So going from a blood cell to a stem cell, the two most popular ways of doing this right now are using Sendai virus to introduce factors and then epizomal vectors. They're the two most popular methods. So essentially, you're doing this with the Yamanaka factors, and Shinya Yamanaka uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering iPSC, so very powerful technology. So that process can take up to three months using both of those approaches. And then once you have your iPSCs, then you can use small molecules, you can use transcription factors, you can use CRISPR activators to turn the iPSCs to your target cell type. And let's say dopaminergic neurons. And we've actually done this at Selena where we've used small molecules to make neurons and we've used CRISPR activators to make neurons. And both of those can work and everybody tends to have their own biological recipe of how they like to make neurons. But of course, the synthetic biology-based approaches of you know, something like CRISPR activators can be much faster. So if the protocol normally would take multiple weeks or months, those protocols can be accelerated down to a few days or about a week. So there is a manufacturing advantage, but you do have to make sure you're doing biology correctly and then there are no off-target effects, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure it's safe. Okay, that leads me really cleanly into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is once you've gone through this process of iPSC induction and then redifferentiation, how do you then know that it worked? Between the reprogramming and the therapeutic moment that you actually reintroduce these cells into the patient's body, you need to make sure that the manipulation was successful. As you say, that no undesired side reactions took place. You may have addressed this earlier when we were talking about image analysis, but how do you do that? How do you know that the manipulation worked? During the manufacturing process, there are several time points at which we check the quality of the cells. There are many, many different assays that are required by the FDA before any of these cells can be introduced into a patient. So those data sets have to be collected as part of those therapeutic doses. And then ultimately, a lot of testing has to go into testing these cell types in animal studies 
and then ultimately, of course, in human studies. And we're just starting to see those first clinical trials launching in the U.S. and internationally. There have been several studies done where single patients were transplanted with iPSC-derived cells. So we're at an exciting time where we're just starting to see those readouts starting to come out of these human studies. So that'll be very interesting to tie back to, okay, how does this correlate to the quality of the cell? How much does it actually matter? It sounds like this approach could really parallelize the generation of therapeutic cells fairly dramatically. What are you envisioning in terms of scale? We would like to, you know, going back to our vision statement, every human, every cell, very intentional because as a company, we'd love to live in a world where it's possible to make cell therapies for all patients who need them. But in order to get there, the manufacturing cost has to go down by a couple orders of magnitude. You know, like I mentioned, today can cost in the order of a million dollars to make a patient-specific dose of stem cells by hand in a high-grade clean room. We have a target of bringing that down to $10,000 or less by 2025. It's in a very aggressive goal. And the reason we believe it's doable is because we're borrowing very heavily from the semiconductor industry, where you saw optical image-guided approaches driving massive reductions in cost as the silicon wafer manufacturing industry really took off. So bringing those elements of light-based analysis, light-based engineering into cells is perhaps our best shot at getting those order of magnitude reductions in cost. So that's what we're going for. It seems really ambitious. And I was struck by the particular slide in your TechCrunch Disrupt talk, which I will link to in the show notes for the listeners, where you have this very dramatic high slope change in the cost between now and 2025. And uh, it reminded me of extrapolation graphs that are drawn to represent Moore's law, which, as everybody knows, has to do with the decrease in cost of semiconductors of a certain density or a certain power. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about the semiconductor industry as an inspiration for what you're doing. I was going to goad you to tell us why is it that you think you can achieve this exponential increase in efficiency and, and dramatic decrease in cost. But it sounds like in some ways, while you're breaking a lot of original ground, you're also looking at what's worked in the past to achieve revolutions and trying to take advantage of those approaches to some extent. Absolutely. And you know, my background and my co-founders, we've all done a ton of nanofabrication, microfabrication. Actually, my co-founder CTO, he set up wafer fabs and had previous companies. So we understand how hard it is. But yes, we do see the power of using light to scale up complex processes. It's a very exciting approach. We have a ton of work to do. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, it'll come down to how well we can build out our technology. But specifically, I think it's going to be a software challenge of sorts. We have to get the software right to get the types of yields we need to hit those cost targets. When you're talking about the software, you're talking about the computational ability to recognize the cell types that are desired and the cell types that are not desired and distinguish the two of them so that you can eliminate the... Exactly. And creating more predictive models. So being able to predict at the earliest time points, which cells are going to turn out to be the best and not the best. I'm going to ask a question that's maybe a little bit a really simplistic, but I think you'll see where I'm heading. Is Salino strictly a platform company that makes a technology or a technological system that everyone else will use to create cell therapies? Or is Salino going to be developing and commercializing its own therapies? We're very focused on building the platform over the next few years, but Salino is going to own the platform. We're going to own the manufacturing technology. We've been thinking very intentionally about how to 
expand and grow the technology so that we can actually apply our technology to making therapies for patients. So our priorities in the immediate near term are to work with the top experts in the world who are developing these cell therapies. They have clinical expertise. They have very deep biological expertise in the particular cell type and supporting those groups and leaders to develop more scalable solutions for personalized cell therapies and specifically also supporting their clinical trials. So the way cells are made today, it's possible to make five or 10 patient-specific doses, which is okay for a phase one slash 2A clinical trial. Once you get to phase three, very difficult because you have to make hundreds of doses sometimes, and it's impossible to do that manually. So we're looking to do some of those partnerships in the near term. But you asked a great question because once the platform is developed, there is an opportunity to generate dozens of different cell types on the platform that uh, would be amazing for a range of different cell therapies. So what we've done is we've brought on for one particular area we're very interested in in immuno-oncology, we've brought on an entrepreneur in residence to incubate a program around a specific cell type that could be manufactured end-to-end on the Selenol platform, which to our knowledge is not being pursued by any other partners. So that's a very interesting cell program that we're exploring as a possible spin-out company coming off of the platform in the next couple of years. I want to move away from the platform now and toward applications. You mentioned a few of these above, but what are the diseases that you and your partners plan on going after first? I would say when you look at the trajectory of the iPSC space, iPSC cell therapy space, and specifically what's happening in the autologous space, a lot of the indications are focused on retina. That's an immediate area of interest for not just Lino, but everybody in this space. And then also Parkinson's, we talked about that. There's some amazing work happening in the skin space for some rare diseases that affect children. And then also muscular dystrophies. There's also a ton of interest in diabetes in the space, hair loss. So many different powerful applications, which would greatly benefit patients. So we're very open-minded, you know, in terms of the platform applicability to these cell types, all of these applications will need high quality stem cells. So that's why we're really focusing the next two years on generating high quality patient-specific stem cells on the platform so we can support as many partners as we possibly can in this space. So many of the diseases you talked about are diseases of aging, and perhaps that's sort of a redundant statement because they're chronic diseases and age is the primary risk factor for a wide range of chronic diseases. But are there reasons maybe why stem cell-based approaches are particularly appropriate for diseases of aging? So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is just understanding or trying to figure out why are these diseases happening? And we don't always have a clear answer. So I think that's what makes it challenging to figure out what other approaches can we take to trying to cure some of these diseases, which is why stem cell-based therapies, stem cell-derived therapies are a great solution because we can implant these cells and see an effect on the patient in a short amount of time and you know improve their quality of life, which I think is very, very important. I will comment here, you know, I always think about it from my perspective as a physicist who's very focused on the cell therapy manufacturing aspect of what's going on. But I do think there's some very interesting biology that we could look at also in terms of connecting the dots between what's happening in the data world and the data that we're collecting during the manufacturing cycles, but also seeing what are those, how does it relate to the patient outcomes? 
And given that we're just starting to see those clinical trials launching, it'll be an amazing time to collect more and more data and then start to draw those correlations onto what's going on and how does it all relate to aging, which I think is a hugely important factor in all of these diseases in many ways. I want to go back to something that you alluded to just a moment ago, having to do with the challenges of running clinical trials for cell therapies. As you pointed out, in an early phase trial, you have just a few patients, you know, 10 or a few dozen. And at those scales, conventional techniques for stem cell husbandry and in vitro reprogramming would make sense for acquiring the cells necessary to do the trial, maybe. But once you get to like a large phase two or any kind of phase three trial, you're talking about hundreds, thousands of patients. And I think the army of stem cell artisans you would need to make those cells just it flatly doesn't exist. And if it did, it would be prohibitively expensive or the study period would be prohibitively long. So in a world without Selino, how did anyone expect to get cell therapy trials done at all with the technology that exists today? We've been very fortunate that we have some amazing partners who've been thinking they're ahead of the curve. So they've been thinking about this for a very long time. So when we meet them, they're ecstatic. They're like, oh, wow, thank you. Thank you for (laughs) taking this automated approach. This is what I've been waiting for. This is exciting. And they already had ideas around machine learning, image guide machine learning, not necessarily the laser piece, but everything else they thought through, everything, how the manufacturing would have to happen in a closed cassette. And then there's another camp where we've heard statements such as, you know, Somebody will figure it out. (laughs) By the time we get to phase three, somebody will figure it out. So that's (laughs) always an interesting response. And when we hear that, it's very motivating because we want to be the ones to figure it out. And we'd like to be the leading manufacturing partner at phase three and beyond for iPSC-based therapy, specifically in the personalized space. So that's what we're targeting. To extend thinking about clinical trials a bit, What are the sort of unique regulatory challenges that you foresee for you and for your partners going forward? It's a very important topic and one that uh, we're spending a lot of time working with the top experts, consulting groups in this space. It really comes down to being able to set standards for the industry and figuring out how we want to regulate the space. And there aren't necessarily any specific guidances that have been issued yet on the regulatory side. So working together as an industry is going to be very important. And we are part of the NIH-initiated consortium and autologous iPSC-based therapies, which in fact, my co-founder, Marina Madrid, is co-leading with folks over at the NIH. And that's been amazing to bring all the voices to the table to figure out how do we regulate this space. It's going to be very, very important to communicate and work together on that. I want to start the process of closing up the interview, and I want to transition to getting back to our mission at Translating Aging. This is a longevity and aging and health span podcast, so I want to kind of invite you to think in a more or less open-ended way about the health span connection and the relationship between what you're doing and thoughts about health span and aging. Right now, it's a time of really intense ferment in biotech related to aging, and there are quite a few companies, BioAge included, that are questing for small molecules to treat diseases by targeting the molecular mechanisms of aging. Is there a way in which Selino fits into that movement? Absolutely, yes. I do think there's going to be a ton of overlap between what's happening in the aging, health span, longevity space versus what's happening in cell therapies. I haven't seen a lot of those connections being made directly yet, but I do think they'll happen. And even when you look at how we generate different cell types on the platform, it is really through small molecule signaling of course, synthetic biology tools as well, but there's a ton of overlap there. You know, ultimately, we're very aligned in our missions 
to make sure people can have healthier lives as we get older and not have to undergo suffering. And when you think about the age-related macular degeneration studies that have happened in Japan, and there's a clinical trial launching in the U.S. in that space, it's all about quality of life and helping those patients regain some level of sight so they can regain their independence. And I do think there's a lot of work that needs to happen (laughs) across all industries to extend health span. I also think there is a preventative aspect to that that is very important that needs to be discussed. How do we make sure we're healthy and also being able to address diseases before they happen? I think there's also going to be tremendous work happening in that space over the next few decades. So I'm really excited to be a part of that movement. Absolutely, cell therapies are really taking off right now. So Sleno Platform being able to support clinicians in their efforts to build out these cell therapies for many patients and test them on patients to provide that scalable solution is really, really compelling. But I do think there's also another world where we could use the same Selenol technology to generate different types of high-quality cells, patient-specific, and use image-guided machine learning to understand like what's going on with these cells. Even from an aging perspective, I think there's definitely some interesting work that could happen there. Yeah, I'm excited. And I do appreciate that all the worlds are somehow converging. I don't know exactly how we're going to overlap, but I see a ton of synergies. The next question is sort of philosophical, and you may have broached this a bit when you talked about prevention. Broadly speaking, are there things that biologics and cell therapies can do that small molecules basically can't? Or are there things that cell therapies will just always do better than small molecule approaches? I will start by saying from What I've seen in the industry, small molecules are incredibly powerful as our biologics. They can do incredible things. And from my perspective, given that we're very much in the cell therapy space, I've gotten to learn a lot about how cell therapies work. And it's super interesting because they're so multidimensional, they're complex medicines, but the manufacturing is also very, very challenging. So I do think all of the therapeutic modalities should in an ideal world live in parallel. And as patients need different modalities, we should step in and figure it out. You know, in a dream situation, if we could solve everything with small molecules, I would totally sign up for that because from a manufacturing standpoint, that is very, very attractive. But until we get there, we will be relying on gene-edited therapies, gene therapies, and cell therapies to fill in the blanks. The nice thing about a cell therapy is conceivably, you know, you take the patient's cells out, you reprogram them, you put them back in, and then the cells are there and they're just doing the therapeutic function. You don't have to keep pumping the patient full of some small molecule that inevitably has target effects, that inevitably has some kind of, you know, adverse reaction. And the frequency of therapy is a lot smaller, at least in the ideal world. So that strikes me as one major advantage of cell therapies. Exactly. You could also engineer cells that pump out small molecules at a specific cadence. What? You just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) okay yes and hormones and all sorts of things yes uh, so there are such things as engineered cells and you can do a lot of things with those yeah wow that's a really exciting direction that i hadn't even been thinking about all right so final question blue sky time i'm just kind of giving you the floor i'm going to start you off with the question where do you want to be in five years where we'd like to be in five years is we want to have our platform developed to a point where we can generate high-quality, patient-specific cells in a reproducible manner and do that for clinical doses. That's very important. Having those cells be a part of a clinical trial, phase one, two, and phase three, to show that iPSC-based therapies can graduate to the phase three level, and we want to be that manufacturing partner. So that's where we'd like to be. 
Awesome. Dr. Nabia Saklayan of Salino Biotech, thank you so much for the fantastic conversation today. Thank you, Chris. This was an absolute pleasure and you gave me lots of things to think about. So we should talk again. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, I'll hit you up in 2025, if not before. Perfect. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.